Unbound. Unbound. This is Unbound, the podcast that tries to nudge the boundaries of philosophy. And this is Kay. And Giuseppe. And with you and a bunch of other friends at the new school, we are going to push the boundaries of philosophy. Are you ready? Let's begin our journey to become Unbound. Okay. Hello and welcome to Unbound. Today we're going to have a conversation with Professor Mackenzie Wark. And we have a guest host, Austin Burke, who is one of our PhD students in the philosophy program. So we're going to talk about, um, well, a lot of things, but hopefully just get, um, you know, more of Mackenzie's insights into how her uh, career has coincided with the new school. And potentially we'll talk a little bit about um, the GSSI and Mackenzie's new role moving forward. Um, so Mackenzie, before um, we get started, would you like to briefly introduce yourself, maybe give us a little background on wh- how you got here? Well, hi, Kay. Hi, Austin. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm uh, Mackenzie Walk, Professor of Culture and Media at Eugene Lang College, and I also teach uh, in Liberal Studies uh, at the uh, NSSR, my, my division is Lang College. I came to the new school uh, 17 years ago. Uh, I had a whole career in Australia, but then I like fell in love with a New Yorker and I like threw away my tenure job and I came to the States and toured upstate for a few years. And my timing was terrible because 9-11 happened and there was no work and no jobs. And I lucked into uh, uh, a kind of uh, unranked three-year contract at, at Eugene Lang, which had like a full-time staff of about 10 at the time. Uh, and I thought, oh, thank God, I'm, I'm in New York City, I'm at the new school. Um, but it seemed like the job was collaboratively with, with my new school colleagues was to build Lang College. Uh, and, and I'd sort of spent 17 years sort of doing that. I, I was the first full-time hire in uh, culture and media. Uh, Samita Chakravati, who's retiring soon, was its chair, was there half-time. I was the first full-time person, and I think we're now we're a faculty of about 12. So I'm proud of having been part of that and part of developing the college. Yeah, and so what about your relationship with um, the New School for Social Research? Because you also teach there, right? Yeah, I... I um, I uh, had a courtesy appointment in the NSSR for a while, but which I, I resigned. I actually am not a member of the NSSR at the moment. My my home is Lang, but I do teach in the uh, Liberal Studies MA, and uh, which I love. It's kind of like a wonderful um, open-ended program where I get wonderful students. Okay, so you are, I mean, because you're teaching gender and it's discontents right now, but that's yeah. just... Just new school bureaucracy, all of the different. Okay. Well, it, I, I have a courtesy appointment in the NSSR. I, I don't get uh, uh, the uh, working conditions of research faculty because I'm not research faculty. Uh, so, so I don't want to do this extra work when when basically I'm an undergraduate teacher. <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a labor issue, uh, essentially. But I, I do love working with uh, uh, students in the NSSR, but I'm just not affiliated with the division. Right. So then do you not usually um, sponsor theses or sometimes with the media studies program? Uh, I'm certainly available if people uh, need any of the, uh, uh, you know, facilities I have uh, for theses, but I'm, I'm not particularly involved in PhD level uh, education. I kind of, I think I prefer the MA level. Uh, and I, I, sorry to bring it up, but I just don't think the job market is in a position where 
uh, uh, you know, sort of training PhDs is the thing I want to do. The thing about media studies is it, it is a way to do um, education at the undergrad or MA level, sometimes even PhD, where there's other things that you can do uh, besides looking for work at a time when uh, higher, I've never seen higher education this bad, uh, you know, in, in 30 years. Uh, so I'd, I'd rather be involved with education that equips people to be elsewhere. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry if there's grad students in the audience. I really wish you luck. Uh, but but right, priorities have been otherwise in education. <laughs> yeah, we kind of know that we're screwed. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess there's still the love of, of education. What were you going to say, Austin? I was just saying there's nothing new there. That's just how it goes, I guess. Um, what, uh, Mackenzie, what, what inspired you, uh, to get into the field of studies that you find yourself in? Like what, what was the moment that, that you knew that was, uh, your thing? Yeah, I ended up, I ended up in, um, media studies cause I did a master's degree in it. And I was at what at the time was a really exciting school in Sydney, which was, uh, uh, University of Technology, Sydney. Uh, it just seemed like that was where the intellectual energy was. And I liked the fact that we were training people uh, to work in radio and work in film or also to be scholars of it. Uh, and it was a time when that field was growing and was kind of expanding. Uh, and I thought, oh, well, my first love was, was philosophy, but I'd, I'd sort of rather do this because it seems organically connected to other kinds of labor processes and other kinds of learning. So I ended up in that and and that, you know, media cultural studies kind of exploded in Australia. Uh, and I sort of got to be sort of like sucked up and into it uh, at just the right moment. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I ended up in it. Uh, uh, do you see uh, any similar interaction between like the technical production side of things and the theory uh, here at the new school or uh, less so? Um, that's That's certainly... Uh, we have different opinions at culture, in culture and media at Lang. Um, I certainly always highlighted that. Like I wanted us to do screen production, uh, to do media production. Uh, it's, it's, it's very hard. And the, the chronic problem with media studies is students not finding the way that the two sides of it combine. Uh, like every field has its chronic problem. And in media studies, that's it. Um, but I like having that problem uh, of like, oh, well, I just made this film. How does my film studies class relate to that? Um, and sometimes it's like, well, maybe your film would be more interesting if you actually used some film history <laughs> and didn't think you were making everything up. But also, like, sometimes the theory's got to keep up with what people want to make. Uh, so I, I find that tension interesting and, and productive. Although, like, my, my media production skills are way, way out of date because uh, uh, those change all the time and we're mostly from an analog era. Uh, so I, I kind of like working with students that I learn from about those things. Um, yeah, I have a question that sort of came up when Austin was talking to you and, uh, you mentioned that you loved philosophy at one point. Um, so you wouldn't, would you accept someone referring to you as a philosopher? Do you feel strongly that you're not a philosopher? Um, would you like to say anything about, I mean, you've spoken before about like high, uh, you know, high theory and low theory. Um, how do you feel, uh, basically about, do you do you associate or affiliate with philosophy at all or yeah well i think most philosophers would definitely not think that i'm a philosopher and i <laughs> i don't really care <laughs> and and yeah I, I do what i call low theory uh and and to me like the interesting people in the canon of philosophy were that anyway 
right? Marx was not a philosopher. Nietzsche was not a philosopher. Spinoza was not a philosopher. They subsequently become that retrospectively when, when they're absorbed into the canon. Uh, Freud was not a philosopher. Like, who are we kidding with this? So I, I'm kind of interested in more in, yeah, what I call low theory, which is what's the conceptual work that's organic to an emerging social force or labor process. So that's, uh, to me, Marx is low, you know, is low theory in that sense of what is uh, a way of thinking that can be organic to organized labor movement. Um, what is the, the theoretical work that's organic and emerges out of uh, anti-colonialism or, and one that's interested me recently is, is out of a sort of self-conscious organized uh, culture and politics of being transsexual. Uh, not new, but I think there's a, a way that's developed recently in, in sort of really interesting ways. So I'm sort of, I'd much more do that. And then it's a question of, well, I can use these uh, concepts from Marx or I can use these concepts from Audre Lord, you know, or like there's, the, it gives you different sources depending on uh, um, what the need for intellectual work is rather than thinking there's a sort of apostolic succession of great philosophers that, you know, once you start doing that, you sort of never stop and you end up sort of doing commentary on that, which is great. And I've, I've depended mightily on people's commentaries on philosophers that matter to me. So I'm not disparaging that. I just don't want to do it. Uh, yeah, I don't want to do that either. Um, but it's interesting because what you're saying to me, I mean, not to disparage anyone, but, you know, it sounds like, you know, very philosophical, your project and your your methods that you're you're not necessarily um just venerating a line of uh, thinkers, but you're also trying to like actually deal with what's going on right now and problems that are going on right now and how to like, I don't know, um, because it seems like some of your biggest interests are things that are material conditions of the world. And I'm, I'm curious how you think thought and media can affect those. Um, I've, I've been thinking about this because, specifically in relation to anti-trans and anti-queer um, rhetoric in the U.S. and then just ways that we have these moments um, in media, like I was going to bring up Montero, which I'm assuming you've seen, um, and the huge backlash to that. Um, and and uh, yeah, just basically how can these how can media productions go about changing the way we think um, or our material conditions? You have thoughts on that? Well, do they? I mean, we don't have any really good direct evidence of media having effects on people, and maybe it's sort of parceling things out in the wrong way to think that there's the media and then there's the viewer and somehow one affects the other, uh, to think a kind of uh, process or situation or field in which media circulates between bodies, through industries, through technologies is sort of more the object of study. Uh, so, so that would be how I'd want to think that. And uh, like, there's a good century of media studies on that. Uh, it's always frustrating to me when people like just land in from another field and they're kind of like, oh, I will now begin to think this thing that has never been thought. <laughs> it's like, you know, we've worked on this for a hundred years. <laughs> like media affects discourse is one of the, the biggest things in media studies is like, uh, you know, like things like does violent TV make kids be violent? You know, like that's been studied to death and the result is more research needed. So maybe it's a badly framed question. Uh, so, yeah, what's what's the interaction between uh, uh, media practices uh, and humans where you don't treat them as necessarily separate? Uh, like one thing about thinking about technology is it's not really separate to the human at all. 
um, the human and the, and the technical have been woven together um, since before we were even really humans. Like the, the hand that can grasp and the stone tool evolved together. Uh, uh, so how do, how do we think our embeddedness within techniques from within it is sort of the way you would start to think that question. It's funny. I mean, this is this is speculative, but I think that um, in philosophy, there's less of a resistance to accepting or embracing as philosophy. Like, you know, there's more neutralized media studies. Like, oh, how how does ideology happen? Where where does the power distribute in these networks? Uh, how does it influence our identities or understandings? Um, and I think that openness isn't as readily there for things like trans theory, gender theory queer theory, you know, they, they can be philosophy in some places, but they're not as uh, uncontroversially uh, embraced. Uh, and, and I wondered if you have any thoughts on maybe the, the strengths and weaknesses or maybe losses and gains that might come with a fuller uh, embrace of like queer theory, trans theory, more fully as philosophy, or maybe sort of backing them away more fully just because of the predicaments that are faced uh, by that association. I mean, there's a, a long running problem about the relationship between uh, thinking through concepts and universality and situatedness. So how do you think those things together? Uh, and so on the one hand, you can uh, critique the claim to universality of conceptual work based on identifying the unacknowledged situatedness of whoever did the thinking. Uh, most philosophies written by men. There's just things I don't understand. And de Beauvoir was already called everybody on that, right? <laughs> it was 60 years ago or something. Uh, so, but then, oh, well, uh, does, does that mean that, oh, we, we still just continue to have, you know, like this sort of universalizing uh, discourse uh, unaware of its situatedness, and then we just sort of have the token appointment that will do difference uh, off in the corner? Um, or is there a way that you can think the relation between the sort of situatedness of from where one thinks and a kind of conceptual grasp that's going to try to speak towards a universal that you never quite meet? Um, so I'm interested in, yeah, what would um, trans philosophy look like that's not just about that specific experience, but says something about gender overall, but where the claim's going to be relatively weak, but maybe weak uh, claims heading towards universality are not a bad thing at all if you just if you recognize that's what they are. So like the the sort of way I explain this to the undergrads is you know a good fact is mostly true about something in particular. But a good concept is slightly true about a lot of things. And the thing to hold on to there is the slightly, rather than to think the concept is is more real than, than the phenomena. No, it's a way of like grasping some of the phenomena uh, uh, and making a, a weak claim about it. Obviously, this is a way of thinking that has uh, a, a history in philosophy, right? But which I think one can appropriate and sort of instrumentalize here. Um, to make a space for the thing I particularly care about is is trans thinking. Uh, what's a low theory of the transsexual experience? It's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to like generalize from certain experiences. It's not going to capture even most other trans people, but it, it will uh, give you some sense of 
you know, if you've not experienced dysphoria, what do you know about gender? You know, like, here's a whole other way to think about it. Uh, and, I, and I think that's where one makes one's claim to be doing something other than, you know, to be slotted into the little, you know, let's let's do all of the differences. We've hired the race person and the colonial person and the gender person. So now we can just keep doing our unacknowledged, unexamined, un, unsituated, universalizing that, uh, that all major discourses still do, yeah? including philosophy, not limited to it. Um, yeah, oh, so much. You said so much, but um, uh, there are a few things that I caught on there. Um, one thing um, in terms of trying to excavate some kind of um, experience of trans, you use the term the transsexual, um, in order to, I guess, you know, tell us something about gender more generally. Um, I'm thinking here of like, Jay Prosser, and I don't know if he goes so far as to claim basically that cis people almost don't have gender identity because they've never had to tell. I think he almost says that, that uh, because they've never had to tell the story of like their gender. And yeah, I'm actually doing research on this right now. Like what do cis people think of their gender identity? Do they even think it's an identity? Do they even, because so much of it I think is like not, then just not thinking about it. Um, But yeah, I mean, I wonder what you think about the term gender identity and if you think of cis people as having gender identity or just having gender or, yeah, I don't know if you if you make a distinction there. I'm actually not very interested in identities at all. You know, I'm <laughs> okay. out of like classic, you know, 80s version of uh, post-structuralism and also out of uh, Hombo, right? Like I as another. Uh, I, I'm just very not interested in identities. I've, I've had to inhabit them. Uh, because there's a sort of um, uh, surface-level interaction in the world um, that's sort of facilitated by that. Uh, uh, people are like, oh, you're you're the you're the the trans woman one. Okay, so I got a box for that, good or bad. Uh, uh, it enables an interaction when you're you know uh, you you could do good old phenomenology about that if you're you know walking down the street or ordering your coffee and all that stuff. Uh, I'm just so not interested in that, and I don't think identities have anything fundamental to tell us about, you know, the possibilities of being. So, yeah, that's, that's why I'm working on on trans aesthetics rather than uh, trans culture in that sense. Like, who are the artists who, who are the outside of that and understand that and, like, duck it so that you can start to, you know, practice whatever gender might be a little bit differently. Uh, and you, I'm sometimes intentionally using the word transsexual. So, like, yeah, I'm interested in sort of medicalized people who... Uh, have, have in a sense crossed, ha, have not just left an assigned gender, but but have have a destiny um, that they might may not meet. So it's a, there's a specific subset of trans experiences that I'm interested in. But all of the others are, are equally valid, to be very clear, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, what what does it mean to be put in the place of having to be that identity, but but wanting the capacity as an artist to be free of it? Yeah, I'm thinking here, though, when we're talking about media and how much media can affect or I guess your conception of it is sort of like a co-construction of the person viewing and the media itself, because like we're involved in what the media means. Um, but But there's this difficulty with visibility and violence. And, you know, as as there's the rise of we see more trans characters, maybe even being portrayed positively for once um, and how that's related to violence and a backlash against them um so yeah i just wonder like what do you think of the way that media in the in recent years has 
represented um, trans people? And like, what do you see as the effects of that in terms of our, of like culture? Yeah, it's ambivalent. And this is already covered in Tourmaline et al's collection, Trap Door, uh, where, yeah, visibility, uh, it, it's enabling in the sense that people um, who have dysphoria or, or have to get out of a gender can, I, can find something that looks like uh, a path, you know. Uh, I, had, I had nothing. Uh, I, had, I had no images. I had no stories. I had nothing. So I, I think from that point of view, one can look at it and go, oh, my God, it was, it's just, it was so, so helpful that there was a generation that had uh, you know, live journal and then a generation that had Tumblr and then a generation that's got Instagram and kind of like, oh, my God, that could be me. You know, like that's sort of so helpful. But bearing in mind the ambivalence that visibility also makes you attackable. Uh, it's so much harder to go stealth even because people are kind of on the lookout, like certain people, right, of like trying to like clock you and, and uh, uh, particularly bad if they want to hurt you. But it's also just no fun if they want to clock you to sort of like give you a hug and say how much they fucking support you. It's exhausting. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's a way in which there's work at the level of culture um, that's to do with, you know, as, as Williams would say, like a structure of feeling and a whole way of life. Like how do you incorporate transness into that uh, in a way that's that's visible, acceptable, ordinary, like a, a good Rain Williams word is, you know, culture is ordinary. So to, so ordinary <laughs> transness, making that a thing has, has certain advantages. But I think, and, and this is completely opposite the way queer theory thinks, which is very interested in the exceptional and the different and making trans making trans women the bad object because uh, we're too literal minded, but celebrating certain kind of you know sort of seemingly critical performances and stuff you know and it's like no I'm sorry I'm not trans to be a fucking performance for a theorist uh, to think something subversive this is my fucking life so, exactly exactly uh, so ordinariness is I think a thing and and where I think trans studies is going to be different to queer theory already is is looking at ordinariness looking at um, people not having jobs and not having housing and and doing sex work, which is fine, of course, but ending up in the criminal justice system because of it and so on. This is not a queer theory agenda. This is a trans studies agenda. Mm. Uh, so, but yeah, to come back to, to media, it's it's always ambivalent. And, you know, the, you look at, uh, look at it as a labor issue. Yeah, okay. So Janet Mott got to direct some episodes of Pose, but who produced it, you know, uh, uh, gets a courtesy co-producer credits not really the person in charge of it no criticism of janet but uh i kind of like when we really get to make our own stuff with our own money like that would that would be the revolution then this ain't it <clears throat> right one thing that we just got news that caitlin jenner is running for governor of <laughs> california i don't know if you... yep just today she announced that I, I saw it as a retweet and the comment on the top was cries in trans is <laughs> <laughs> all I had to say on the matter. Uh, yeah. It's unfortunate. Well, I don't want to, you know, bash Caitlin, but just that this is the, the most famous um, trans woman that uh, everybody knows about. And then it also has led to, I mean, especially a lot of the things that she said, which are, are, but anyway, um, one thing I wanted to bring up, which I, maybe you're totally not interested in at all, um, in terms of identity and uh, how people find their identity, I mean, there obviously is a discourse about, you know, for instance, Lil Nas X turning kids gay, um, which 
no one worries that, you know, if we watch Romeo and Juliet, it's going to turn us straight. <laughs> um, right. Uh, there's, there's this tension and worry that kids are going to become queer or trans, not that they already are and that this is giving them some kind of like empowerment, but that somehow we're, we meaning anyone that's performing this is, is turning them, you know, queer. Um, and it's just interesting from what you said before about how, like, do we know that violent video games make people violent? Like we still don't even know. Right. Um, and yet this claim is being made. And of course this claim has been made forever, um, but yeah, I just wonder how we, what yeah. we do with that discourse, how we fight that discourse, because it is something where like JK Rowling uses it too, as an example, where she says, oh, whole groups of people just become trans together. Like, like it's just a cool thing. They find it on Reddit, whatever. Um, and their conceptions of how people become trans, which of course they're not really thinking of it as like, it's just something someone is, um, but yeah, so that's why I'm, I'm a little interested in identity and a little interested in like how cis people, because they never have to have that moment where they justify being cis. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know I just said a lot, but I wonder like, what, what do you think is our recourse there's, to this discourse? There's histories to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you've read Madame Bovary, like part of it is about the, the influence of the novel. Uh, you know, like the novel is the thing that's corrupting women. Uh, is a thing that, that Flaubert plays with it, but it's it's from the discourse of that moment. And there is a thing about um, media as vector that sort of enters the home and interrupts patriarchal authority, and that's probably kind of real. Uh, you know, there's, there's a way it sort of comes in sideways uh, and, and you get different information that's not from uh, the priest or the father uh, telling you what to do. And there's a whole history of that past the novel, the comic book, there's massive panic around that. Uh, panic around cinema, which resulted in the sort of self-censorship system uh, that made cinema so hot from the 30s through to the 50s particularly because you weren't allowed to be explicit anymore. Uh, concerns about radio and quote-unquote race music uh, as, as corrupting in a much more explicitly racialized way. Um, this connects to the history of subculture as well. Uh, connects to uh, discourses in sociology about deviance and the policing and management of deviance uh, to do with with bad sexuality and gender expression, particularly in the post-war period. There's a lot of stuff about, uh, um, you know, panic around that. Great book by Stanley Cohen about uh, folk devils and moral panics, uh, of how you sort of identify who is the corrupting agent taking people out of the authority of, of church and family. Uh, and then have a moral panic about it. And we're in the middle of the one about, about transness. Uh, there is some truth to the, to the sort of vector of media coming in sideways and interrupting those patterns of authority. Um, but that's different to sort of assuming that there's some causal relationship. So it's like, yeah, there's probably like, you know, I don't know, thousands of kids who have seen Pose on TV and some of them came out as trans, but you know what? Most didn't. <laughs> like there's no there's no causality that you can show uh but you know people who are already trans saw something and went oh my god i can be me i don't know if i can kill myself like there's a thing that would would make my life better so i, I think and there's a lot of panic around like sudden rise in in uh, teens expressing interest in transition and it's like yeah from a base of pretty close to freaking zero and i think it'll level out at a few percent uh a lot of people a lot of teens who have questions about gender don't actually transition they just have questions and they're right quite rightly not 
interested in the forms of cisgender identity they're being handed, yeah? Uh, I think particularly for people assigned female at birth, you'd look at that and go, would intuit, you wouldn't have a language for it, but you'd be like, this patriarchy thing is so messed up, I do not want to be the thing that I'm supposed to be in this diagram of gender. And there are assigned male people who figure that as well. It's kind of like looking like being turning into a man seems like a really awful thing to become. But then you figure out some way to be in that that modifies it without transition. I think that's the more common result of that inquiry. But a tiny percentage of people, and it's probably 2%, right? It's not really well studied, but it seems that's how many of us there are. Uh, will be like, I'm out. <laughs> I was assigned that I can't be there. And then, then that's either the thing, the thing all trans people have in common is that moving away from what's assigned, but there are many destinations from where one could go. Uh, like, yeah, I got to be the other gender or I'm landing somewhere in the middle or I'm off that chart. That's not how I'm thinking about it at all. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's now the object of a moral panic, not for the first time. Uh, it lands on us as it did in the thirties, uh, early target of the Nazis was non-conforming, gender non-conforming people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's, it's, there's a, there's, there's a lot of moving pieces to it, but yeah, there's, there's kind of a myth that's shared both by people who want to do good representation in media and people who are opposed to it, that media has effects. They're not measurable. Uh, you don't know, but that, but there's a way in which media opens the space of possibilities. And in fact, does that for everybody. Uh, uh, generations of immigrants learned how to be American from the movies. Yeah. You went to the movies and it's like, oh, okay, that's how you walk down the street. That's how you talk to someone of the opposite sex. That's how you order a drink. That's the kind of conversation that you're allowed to have with a stranger in public. Everybody learned that from the movies, <laughs> from the silent era. And then, oh, that's how you talk when the talkies happen. So like it creates, media creates spaces of possibility uh, for how people can uh, perform uh, in the performative sense. Butler never talks about this, but we get those models from media and vary and circle, circle around them, but it's not like they have causal effects. It seems like that's what's dangerous about media pandering as well, just like trying to include the most generic representation of some demographic. It's just, I mean, it's incredibly limiting to see the same, you know, template performance being done is that that's what you can be if you're this this is what that is it's like there's not really that attempt to find something new or find something that's maybe representative of a less you know large percentage of any demographic but i mean that is limiting if you're finding this is a liberatory uh a means by which to sort of find yourself maybe and imitating it to an extent it can also be uh, restrictive maybe mm. Yeah, and, and, and this results in, in trans community and the discourse, as, as we say, of, uh, uh, oh, you're not allowed to use those words or you're not really trans if you're doing this or that. Uh, and it's, it's kind of maybe inevitable that, you know, like cultures are about boundaries, like cultures are about, uh, you know, conditions of includability, uh, kind of inevitable, but it's not art. Uh, like those are sort of different practices. I'm sort of a little bit more interested in the latter one. I mean, I'm interested, I'm interested ethnographically in, in practices of, of trans being and possibilities of becoming. Uh, and they're a little more fluid uh, uh, than one might think, but they do circle around the same problems in the same terms over and over again. Uh, you know, there's this kind of a repetitive quality to it. But yeah, I'm, I'm a little less interested in, in the category of identity 
Um, well, Kay's point is really true: is that that yeah, cis people don't even get don't even have to think about it most of the time. Uh, uh, that you know, like it's not even a question. Uh, that's that it is a thing that's distinctive about transness. Yeah, it's like oh, I was told I was X, but I'm not. <laughs> like that's that's real and distinctive. Where you go from there, of course, can vary a lot. Um, okay, so. Uh, we've had a really great conversation. I haven't asked at all about the new school, really. Um, but would you say that this, that what we're talking about right now, um, that this kind of discussion is something that you talk about in your media studies or film studies classes? Um, what have you, I don't want to say learned from your students, but, you know, in a very broad construal, like, you know, from having students at the new school, has that you know, push you in any direction or introduce you to any new thinkers or I don't know if you want to say something about that. Oh, it's, and it's one of the absolute pleasures of doing uh, classes in media studies is I get to learn things from students. Uh, so yeah, I taught uh, game studies a few times and, you know, I wrote a book in game studies, but I didn't keep up and the students will tell you like what's going on with that. Uh, I'm teaching a course on queer and trans cinema and there's, there's students are always telling me about, artifacts of media culture I'd never heard of that seems super interesting and weird and I have to find a way to process that. I hope I'm bringing something to the table, like I have a theory of what games are and how they work and I know the literature. I, I know classic cinema and I can sort of introduce people to that, but then it's sort of like the, the exchange part is really interesting. I, I want to pay tribute to like one uh, student who I had as an undergrad and then as a graduate student, which was Cato True. Uh, I learned so much from Cato, who chose no longer to be with us, right, but um, did a truly fantastic uh, master's thesis on masochism uh, and is from the BDSM world. I'm, I'm not. Like, I've, you know, butted up against that, but I didn't really understand it. It's like, oh, I now know what that is. Like, you've given me a language to see how varied that is uh, and why those experiences are specific. Um, and Cato gave me things to read. I gave Cato Kathy Acker to read. And Cato's paper on Kathy Acker is now in Transgender Studies Quarterly. And I've written about it in my book on Kathy Acker. So it's like, oh, well, thank you. Because it, like, I needed the situatedness of somebody who knows something about masochism to understand this writer's uh, uh, sort of approach to that. Uh, so, yeah, but not the only example like that, but one that's, that's sort of very dear to me. Austin, did you want to ask your question about teaching about sexuality? Sure. Um, I was just wondering, uh, this maybe goes back to a couple earlier themes, uh, like toward the, the tendency of philosophy to drift toward the universal um, and the sort of uh, barrier that runs up against necessarily uh, in discussing any sort of personal experience or, or something that's not universalizing. Um, how, how do you negotiate maybe the boundary between like abstraction, universalization, theory, uh, impersonal concepts, uh, and using the personal lived experience, um, just self-knowledge, uh, something that's intuited that isn't uh, articulable in rigid categories that can be analyzed. Uh, how do you negotiate that, uh, that distinction maybe? Yeah, with a great deal of difficulty. And, and it seems to me that, uh, and there are sort of examples of how to do that. Uh, I kind of loved um, Don Haraway's Companion Species text, even though I'm not a dog person. But it's like, oh, like you learned this from an actual dog and you've named the dog 
And like the, the, the dog is co-author of the paper because your interaction with the dog gives you this insight into how species are together. And then, and then there's a the concept. So I can't, I'm interested in, in moving more in sort of auto theory. Like you, you become a trans person, you're a marked subject in a, in a way that you, you can no longer function as the unmarked subject. Uh, which, which like, even like, you know, like white women, academic feminism, it's all written from a point of view of an unmarked subject. Uh, I'm like, I, that's not available to me. Like I'm not, I wouldn't be accepted as that. So I kind of have to find a different way of writing where the, the experience is specific to it. And it was there when I wrote, uh, gamer theory, I was involved with like an avant-garde of game design when I did Hack Manifesto. Those books are more ethnographic than they look, you know, like that one was about my involvement with, you know, sort of avant-garde of, um, of, you know, computation and the internet and stuff like that. Um, but I think I have to draw that voice in a bit more. And uh, when I wrote uh, Reverse Cowgirls kind of experiment with that, um, like, you know, what, what would a phenomenology of the body be that's a lot more specific about which body? Because um, there's kind of an, ab an abstractness to the way Merleau Ponty does that that's not particularly satisfying. Uh, the only body that's, and obviously others have said this, but the only body that's imaginable there is the uh, Suzette Mahel. Uh, like, ah, I'm, <laughs> I tried to be that body, but I'm not. Uh, what's the phenomenology of this one? Uh, and then sometimes that hits, like sometimes that is somebody else's actual experience, but sometimes it's the friction between that and somebody else's experience is what's conceptually sort of lively and useful. Hmm. Um, I wonder, do you think it's, I mean, even, I guess, possible at some point for persons who haven't experienced some sort of friction or rupture, um, discomfort in, in what they are told they are to uh, embark on something where they would view themselves or try to view themselves as as an unmarked subject, or, or is it just inherently you you sort of have to have a rite of passage into uh, that that perspective? It's I, I think it's also method, and and to me this is this is uh, Deleuze, yeah, like becoming woman and then becoming infinitesimal. Uh, how do you minoritize yourself? How do you detach from uh, the dominant categories of identity and think, think outside them. Uh, you know, like that, think outside the box, like it's more think without the box is a whole other, you know, like a much more difficult task. And that's that sort of the task. So there's a, a way in which self-minoritizing uh, is not evenly distributed as a possibility, but, but I think it's really helpful for anybody to kind of embark on that as long as you're aware that there's dangers in it. Another thing one learns from Deleuze, yeah. Yeah, how to, what, what's the part of, uh, one's uh, supposed subject that's the the mark or the the stain or the breach uh, through which you would see yourself as other. I don't know if I missed, um, <laughs> I, I know I missed something, but I uh, just wanted to say with the unmarked case, <laughs> something that I've been um, really noticing on Zoom, I don't know if anyone else has, but just, that only people who are trans put their pronouns pretty much. And so there is this way where like you go into a, a Zoom room and we literally are marked <laughs> and they literally are not marked. And I tried to make this point about, you know, when you do that, when you say that, it's you saying, you know, my pronouns are obvious, just sex my body, you know, the way that you would sex other bodies. Um, but I am curious in contradiction to this or like if you've heard ContraPoints if you saw this whole controversy, yeah, where basically she said, you know, I feel as though when I'm in a room, the only reason we're saying our pronouns is because of me. And 
it's really obvious. So I don't, or it should be obvious to some extent that I'm presenting as a woman. So why I need to say it? And then of course there's backlash with non-binary people who feel as though it's never obvious. Although I don't know that that's, that has to always be the case. And maybe with aesthetics, like there will one day be a very um, recognizable, uh, legible version of non-binariness. But at this point, there really isn't. So I wonder what you think about that and uh, saying oh, preference. I, and and ContraPoints, aka Natalie Wynn, got so much flack for this. Like I hesitate to like, say anything about it because the discourse seizes hold of these things, right? And, and it immediately becomes, uh, you know, like like a, a thing that will kind of haunt you. Uh, and and like, why do we do that? Like like, why do trans people like attack each other more than anybody else? It, it's it's kind of I found the whole thing kind of depressing. Uh, it was a very it was a very unguarded statement she shouldn't have made. I, but I sort of do identify with the sentiment a little bit. Uh, I, I and and it touches on the fragile alliance between, for one of better terms, uh, the transgender and the transsexual. Uh, and where Natalie speaking for one of those experiences and identifying points of friction with the other. And I, I think the political alliance between those two kinds of transness is very important and should come first, uh, but they're different experiences. And I'm a little bit in between even that uh, as, as, a, as a she, her pronouning medicalized trans woman who doesn't pass and never intends to. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of in between the two uh, positions in a way. Uh, but I, yeah, and and the the things we say when we bitch about each other, you know, behind closed doors, sort of needs to be addressed at some point because that alliance can be very fragile. But I think it's very important to kind of understand, uh, and, and it touches on how our experiences are not universal. Uh, that one's one's version of uh, non-binariness isn't transness in in toto, uh, and cannot uh, reach to the experience of. Of transsexuality and vice versa to be very clear yeah um and of course this is even just the top level problem and then you throw a race on top of that and you're like who the hell do we think we are that we're having a discourse about this when um people whose experience of this is overcoded by something else aren't even party to it but i i'm super not all that interested in like the modifications of bourgeois civility as the answer to everything because that's liberal discourse uh, it's like, oh, we'll just find a polite way to talk about everything and the problem goes away. Um, it doesn't, you know. Uh, and, yeah, I, I might also prefer, I wouldn't choose a sports bar, but I might choose to not be in a kind of, uh, you know, kind of bourgeois elite educated community where, you know, people are very proper about pronouns and things, but really just as a mask for contempt. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, I really don't want to be tolerated. Um, but that's sort of what that offers. It makes no claim beyond that. So, yeah, I mean, if, if I was uh, an administrator at the university, I might be more focused on that because it does help the workplace if people have codes of civility um, for managing difference and awareness of people's situatedness and things like that. And that's not my job. You know, I'm kind of interested in people uh, whose art might not be out with a capital A, but uh, is inventing other ways to be trans. That's not going to be captured by uh, a pronoun call out or whatever. 
I'm always on the fence. I, I kind of, um, I did an event for the new school just a week ago and I'm like, ah, am I going to say my pronouns? Everybody else did. <laughs> I did, but I was tempted to not do it as the only trans person there, you know. And one of very few trans faculty at the new school who's full time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, of course, you know, I, I don't know how everyone else feels about this, but, you know, I, of course, don't feel like trans people need to always say their pronouns. I feel like, you know, it's, it is more incumbent upon uh, upon cis people to try to create a space um, where trans people feel included. And I think when there's no discussion of the pronouns, I don't know, at least for me, it just feels like it's this, it's like, okay, we're, we're not even, we're not even thinking about that. We're not even going there. And like a lot of our professors will not put their pronouns. Um, and to me, that's setting an example saying, you know, it's obvious what my pronouns are, um, whatever. And I mean, just like I said, it just to me seems like it's reifying the system of sexing bodies. But like you said, I think, you know, it's complicated in every situation. And it's it's also like, yeah, um, I mean, I feel like I have to say my pronouns or no one's going to. Do I want to be included in whatever that is? I'm not sure that I do. Right. Right. Uh, Yeah. And that's another tension as well uh, as to whether people. you know, the, the aim of trans liberation is inclusion or if the aim of trans liberation is, you know, actually overthrow gender in its totality and replace it with something else, you know. Make everyone queer. That's what they think we want. Yeah. I'm, I'm, at gunpoint, uh, force them all. People about queer as a category at this point. Uh, but um, but also, you know, like I'm, I'm from an era where, you know, even if, if that's what you were, let alone trans, you are permanently marked as an outsider. Uh, and and that was sort of my people was was demi mons and bohemias and and things like that like that was that was my world like it never really seemed that you like I never expected to be included uh, so I I don't want to take away people whose goal is that um, but also I don't want to make that you know like inclusion in bourgeois society like who wants to be part of it you know like don't really <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah i was working on um drafting the platform for the dsa for the que- that we have a queer plank and um <laughs> the original draft said you know we're working towards um you know being able to be autonomous and uh like you know have have well-paid jobs or whatever and i was like is that really our goal or is that what we're aiming for that's what we want because that seems like maybe short-term goal but in the long term we don't think that working is what we have to do we don't necessarily agree with this autonomous um ideology and yet in order to craft this this plank to make it look like queerness has an acceptable agenda um you know we have to phrase it in certain ways that are neoliberal um but yeah, no, the same question is like, do we really just want to be included? Was gay marriage the end all be all for, um, you know, gay rights? No, because it was literally just asking to be allowed in a system that from the outset had excluded us. Um, so, but then asking to actually tear down the entire institution of marriage is far less acceptable, I, I guess, to people. Um, I mean, you know, like the way I phrase this is, is well, what are... Uh, what's the political leadership of, you know, black trans women saying is their agenda. Uh, Housing insecurity, mass incarceration, uh, involuntary sex work, uh, uh, exposure to random violence, um, both in the home and outside of it and on the street. Uh, 
problems around addiction and mental health, triggered by all of the above, uh, zero access to uh, regular employment. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, you know, lack of, of community-specific services around HIV. Like you, you could keep adding to the list, yeah? And I'm like, all right, what if we focused on that? Uh, because I think when you, when you look at uh, on, on whom does uh, oppression rest heaviest, that is the way you think universality, yeah? It's like, oh, that's where, I don't say intersex, there's a limit to thinking intersectionally, but like this is where everything gathers. This is where the, you know, the uh, assembling of all of those processes uh, gives you, by kind of reversal, you know, liberation means addressing all of those things, not just one of them, like not just the one that makes, uh, you know, like some white, you know, trans woman feel more comfortable uh, in her tech job, you know. I think that's, I mean, incredibly true and admirable. Uh, I wonder how that could be realized or made focal within uh, a conventional philosophy department, because there's just such a, I think, an aversion to anything that's concrete and specific and practical and meaningful. <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, well, not my problem, because I'm not in a philosophy department. <laughs> And, and chose not to be. <laughs> You're here now. So. Uh, but, but yeah, there, there's ways of reading, uh, uh, you know, philosophy that opens that door. Like, I, I think um, Deleuze and Guattari never really reads Judge Schreiber thoroughly. Like, I'm not aware in the, the published body. It, it's always, like, touched on glancingly. Uh, but, you know, Daniel Paul Schreiber was obviously a trans woman it's a little anachronistic to use that term but it's so clear the freudian reading is so unbelievably wrong like unbelievably wrong and and not defensible textually um trish sala has already sort of pioneered opening up this other reading so like, all right well this is already a, a kind of text on the edge of you know the the serious literature that that philosophy occupies itself with uh, and if you actually really just put Deleuze and Guattari through Schreiber rather than vice versa, uh, you have like a truly fantastic version of it. And then a kind of critique of, um, you know, the Lacanian psychoanalysts who meant us harm and harmed us um, by misreading that text and conflating uh, the psychosis with the transness, you know. So I, I think there's things that are available and, and doable in that space, yeah. Um, but I, I just didn't particularly want to do them. You know, I, I worked on that uh, thesis with um, Cato on masochism, which then also means reading uh, Deleuze on Sasha Massot. Uh, and funny, actually, it's not, it doesn't hit the mark, uh, that it's sort of the actual sorts of experiences of a certain kind of masochism isn't addressed there and needs a different theory. Uh, Amber Musa has a good book that, that gets a little closer to that. You know? So, yeah, I think there's there's work that's sort of doable in that space, but you're up against, on the one hand, the continental tradition that's has become very much about commentary uh, on and on a fixed canon. Uh, and I, I don't even know what analytic philosophy does. It seems like you take uh, a bunch of random, completely unexamined non-facts that you think are the world and make arguments about them. Um, and never verify what they're about. Like, that's certainly where gender critical philosophies ended up. Like, what are my random assumptions that I've never really thought about about gender? Uh, let me make arguments about them. 
completely independent of any examination of a fact. And even though I'm from a very theory heavy tradition, like there's, there's a reason to do empirical work, right? <laughs> there's a reason to actually know whether the object you are talking about is actually captured by the terms in which you use it. But it seems like a step that's left out in that branch of philosophy. So hence of just zero interest. Yeah, I was just going to say, I find um, that when we do read, like we've read Schreiber in multiple classes, actually, and um, no reading has been like, they don't talk about gender. And it's like, I don't understand how you can be looking at this and not be thinking about how this is related to um, violating certain gender norms. And that's why you're seeing it in this light. And it's, it's honestly kind of offensive. I mean, um, it is. And I feel like there's just such a hostility because philosophy has become such a like honestly like a safe haven for turfs and that's something i've been noticing um with i don't know if you've read kathleen stock or you, you've heard of kathleen stock she won um names i was not going to mention <laughs> what there are names i was not going to mention like what, okay right yeah well give airtime to but to, it's important to respond to her not, in my opinion just because no, it's not why yeah is it important no. to, to bad work yeah because like, people are giving her awards and acting as though she is i mean she is she's teaching students she's being regarded as um and this is to me it's weird because it's like okay we barely have any women in philosophy and then this is what you want to do <laughs> like um, you know, and, and I do think there's a lot of that in philosophy. And I think the only way we can respond to that is a trans philosophy, um, movement that becomes more, you know, uh, pro I mean, there is one, but becomes more prominent because it seems like these arguments have to be contradicted because most of the men in philosophy are not thinking about this at all. Not to be, you know, no. yeah. What do you want to say? I, no, the thing to do is ignore it. Uh, like <laughs> why allow it to set the terms of debate? Uh, and responding to it only fuels uh, its visibility. Uh, it's a double bind. So, like, don't engage in the double bind. I mean, I have, you know, sisters who, who are trying to do that work. Uh, it's exhausting. Uh, you get uh, trolled. You get death threats. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't think anything comes from debate. Deleuze was right about that too, yeah. Uh, philosophy is always singular. It's not dialogic. Uh, and like, why see the grounds of debate uh, to people who have no idea what they're talking about, uh, other other than find elaborate ways to uh, make a prejudice seem respectable. Uh, so yeah, I, I think trans studies really does better to just completely ignore, um, you know, what's what's there to deliberately harm us. Uh, but and yeah, but then like, oh well, if no one else is doing that work on Schreiber, then like gold. <laughs> Like there's, there's so much in that. It's just um, how would you make sense of Schreiber without talking about gender? Like just that strikes me as kind of surreal. There's obviously other things in it, you know. Like it's, it's how do you make sense of anything without talking about gender? I don't know. Well, I, I don't. <laughs> but um, far. um, but yeah, it's it's certainly a perspective that that's powerful uh, and and rich and adds something to pretty much anything else you might be looking at. Uh, and, and, you know, like have a look at what's going on in the sort of interesting journals and what's getting published. And you sort of think, oh, well, like there's there's agendas and, and people are working on that. There's, there's usually a front line, like, a, you know, like a, who's doing the advanced work and what are the questions being asked in it? Uh, and, and read that, you know. 
I'm not a person to really pay much attention. Yeah, to, I'm interested. You know, <laughs> I, I, I didn't really pay much attention to my own teachers. You know, I just went and read the, the literature and figured out what I thought was the advances in it, you know, and brought that back to Yeah, my- I guess my interest with caffeine stock is also the way it's been exported over here and like the way the anti-trans res- like legislation in the UK and now all these and I, I don't know how we want to conceptualize it too, because there's obviously a backlash. All of these anti-trans legislation, um, like these bills were all submitted right around the same time. They're basically copy pasted from one another. Um, and they are very, very particular, like making trans women targets much more than trans men. Like they're, you know, we want to protect women's sports, um, et cetera. They don't say anything about quote, you know, they, they do these, these bills though, they do, try to say there's a biological they're they're saying there's only two sexes they're saying you know this is what defines these sexes they're saying you know your your natural levels of testosterone like whatever um and yeah i mean i think i don't know what the right way and i, I get what you're saying like ignore this to some extent but someone has to argue with these these republicans but i don't know how um, no no one needs to people already disagree with them like it's a minority position. Right, I know, but... Not an argument. And the arguments they make, they don't even care about. They're obviously inconsistent and not fact-based. So it's not... Like, like people keep like pr- proceeding as if there's a public sphere. Like, there isn't. It doesn't exist. Like, there's sort of ideological decoration for a hate campaign. It's not about arguments. It's about power. Uh, now, it does matter to be uh, producing... Uh, a different narrative, a different affect, but it doesn't have to engage with any of this at all. And I think good reporting on this has done things like go interview uh, trans athletes who are in school and, or, you know, talk to the people that they are in, they're in community with. And, and you find out, yeah, like for most kids, sport is, is like doing stuff together and being together and, you know, being physical in ways that are acceptable and, uh, and and comradeship and things like that. And you like tell that story and everyone goes, oh, yeah, I remember that. I, I really sucked at basketball, but I so love being on the team. And why would I want somebody who desperately wants to play basketball to not be allowed to be on the team, you know? Uh, and it's kind of obvious that the trans girl is not necessarily the, the one that's going to win all the time. Like that's never happened. Uh, so I think you sort of like you tell a different story and you weave it into um, an existing popular culture and a framework that people understand. Like why engage, never engage with arguments that are made in bad faith. Like they're, you know, uh, they're not arguments. Uh, they're, you know, ideological weapons um, to cement voting blocks in heavily gerrymandered districts. There's no argument to be had. Uh, and yeah, they'll occasionally have people, you know, recognize um, by the state or with academic credentials that they'll selectively use. But what of it? Uh, we have those too. Um, I'd much rather be talking about uh, Jules Jill Peterson, who wrote the book on histories of the transgender child. Um, it's kind of a really good book. I don't agree with all of it. I have a slightly different position. But I think in in uh, I really respect the work that she did, and that's the one I would push forward, like rather than talk about the enemy all the time and let them set the terms of debate. I never let anybody else set the terms of debate. I think that's the first rule. Yeah, it seems like after the first treatise uh, against flat earthism, then you can just continue revealing why that's you know not um, not the best theory without consistently addressing it vocally. Yeah, um, just keep building the theory that makes sense and let it fade away. 
Yeah, and it's like, oh, okay, do you want to believe in flat earth stuff or do you want a vacation in Australia? <laughs> You've got all these gorgeous, cute animals and the weather is fabulous. It's really safe. <laughs> but that would be- I guess I just like being critical. Yeah, but, but why be critical? I guess that's my, my only enjoyment is criticizing. <laughs> but I think there's better objects to pick. Cause they're just brick walls. Like you hit them and you, you get nothing. I know. Yeah. I just feel like this binarism. Yeah. I'd love to know where, uh, transness is hiding in, uh, the philosophical canon. Uh, cause you know, it's there cause it's everywhere. Uh, like, and the way to do it is not to try to like, you know, project transness onto a given person but what if you take away the assumption that a writer is is cis uh then how do you read them uh what's really going on in merleau-ponty's phenomenology of the body like you don't have to go and it would be a wild claim right but that there's some weird general weirdness going on with maurice you know uh, i don't want to make that claim but it's like oh wow if you if you sort of bracket off the assumption that everybody's always cis all the time. It's really interesting that you developed this whole phenomenology of the body. Uh, and that was the thing you focused on. And it's, and it's oblivious to gender difference, but in a like truly fascinating way. It's why I find Salomon's reading of it kind of much more interesting than Liz Gross, you know, uh, or like where, where is, if we take away the assumption of cisness and read Liz Gross, like that would be like super interesting. Uh, and like the stuff on Darwin and Bergson and so on, like it's kind of great. And it just takes this weird turn and, and makes this reductive reading of Irigaray that makes no sense in relation to the rest of the work. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, and then, then gender is some like essential part of biological being, but you know, you just talked about the whole of biology where it's not <laughs> like, Okay, like, yeah, I think there are objects to be kind of critical of that are kind of more interesting and slippery uh, and not so directly weaponized. Gross is kind of like a liminal case there, maybe, maybe not engage with. Where's, where's transness in queer theory? Like, it's all over the place. Uh, you know, like, all, all of, you could go through the entire canon of what we thought was gay stuff and ask if it's actually trans stuff, you know, and sometimes it is. Like, is Janae really a gay writer or is this really about instability of gender it does seem like queer theory is just increasingly coming to stand for like deconstruction <laughs> the the terms are starting to blur closer and closer together until yeah it's not yeah and queer theory is very enabling for me in in lots of ways but there's a way in which it was a kind of um uh elite academic formation that chose certain areas of focus uh and chose to directly conflate uh, sort of acts of aesthetic performance with the politics, uh, which I always think is a mistake. Aesthetics and politics are different things, like they interact, um, but it puts way too much burden on, uh, you know, alter alterity in performance of gender as, a, as directly political, because that then exempts you from any politics around, you know, the things we listed around mass incarceration and homelessness and so on. You know, I'm being political merely by performing my gender. It's like, I don't think so, honey. So you, you write a lot and I'm wondering how, um, what your process is like in terms of, you know, we're having this conversation. Um, do you, you know, have a conversation with a student, have some kind of idea, just go write it. Um, how, how, because you write a lot, like I can't emphasize enough. So, 
yeah, I'd like to know a little bit about like your writing process and maybe how it connects to your teaching. Yeah. Well, it's all related to teaching. Um, I'm very conscious of never stealing from students just to be very clear about that. When I say it's all connected to teaching, right. Uh, but and I love working with undergrads on stuff that might be book projects, uh, because the, the questions really oriented away from being, you know, hyper-focused on, uh, the, you know, sort of inside baseball type questions in a field. I can get you to the really basic stuff of, uh, you know, why do people like playing games? You know, I found it really helpful to have a bunch of gamers in a classroom to, you know, figure out how to think about a book about games. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I've, I've, I've been doing, uh, stuff on trans aesthetics in the classroom for like three years now, I think. And I just did a special issue of, um, Eflux journal, and it's going to come out in some form. Like I, it's sort of like seeding a, a little idea up there somewhere where, oh yeah, like, like teaching and particularly actually uh, undergrad MA level, I actually find it's the best way to write books. Uh, quite frankly, I guess why my books sell because um, they can connect to a certain level of uh, intellectual interest, um, but I'm not writing exclusively for the PhD graduate seminar because uh, I, I think that was a bit of a trap that writing in quote unquote theory got into uh of like well yeah this is like amazingly sophisticated and super interesting but you would need a hundred thousand dollars worth of graduate education to understand it uh so like my books have concepts in them like they're not um they're they're not for everyone but they're for anyone like the tools to read them are in the book um so yeah i, I like doing work that has that um uh, that mid-level is not sort of trapped so much in a disciplinary space uh, like people keep telling me I write a lot. Like my question is always, why don't other people do it? You know, like <laughs> if you're a writer, you're right. You know, like, there's, that's one answer to that. But I finally have an answer to like, why, why did I write so much? And it's like undiagnosed gender dysphoria and dissociation. So that's now the answer I give. And you should see the looks I get. People are like, what? <laughs> yeah. I just made my emotional damage like productive, um, as, as, trans people can do like we're not the only ones who dissociate but boy are we good at it you know in the new world all you have to do is write it down you know uh, i don't know if i can still do it actually i, I don't know if i can still write like that because i solved some of the problem with the efflux uh issue down now uh what's what's your next project if you if you know um there's um um a section in brooklyn rail i have coming out in early may uh, May 2021. <laughs> uh, that's um, so. Eflux was trans femme aesthetics, and I, I did critics page for Brooklyn Rail on trans femme endurance, and I wanted particularly trans women of color talking about the, the arts of endurance rather than aesthetics as you know that sort of disinterested space of luxury in a, in a certain sense. It's like oh, there's arts of everyday life. And, and I think even uh, trans women who are, you know, trans women of color who are middle class and stuff, there's still so much that you're up against. So I got a, a sort of a range of writers. Um, it's all trans women of color. I thought had interesting things to say about that and who would help me get through COVID, you know, um, with their music and their art and things like that. So it was like a little thank you. So, yeah, whenever I can get a budget together, because um, obviously, trans people have to be paid. I'm never going to ask people to work uh, for nothing. would never do that. 
Uh, and I'd never ask people to work for money that's less than I would take. Um, so yeah, uh, full disclosure, EFLUX pays 750. I've taken the 750. So I will, I will ask people to work for money that I would accept. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think those things are coming out. I have some, uh, a little project I'm nursing in this space, um, for the summer, which hopefully I can think through and plan out a bit, but I've not, my writing brain went away. Um, maybe partly because of COVID. Um, going on hormones will really screw up your brain. Uh, the end result is good, but the first two years are pretty shaky. <laughs> I see some nodding. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of um, uh, was having this crisis two summers ago and I texted, you know, like a, a big sister figure. I'm like, I can't write. Like hormones are messing with my head. And she's like, well, first of all, it's not just hormones. You change your social role. You're interpreting hormones through that. So like pay attention to that. Secondly, you know, look, I had to stop writing for three years and you're complaining about losing it over a summer. Like, get a grip. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I honestly don't know. what uh, I have a book on um, Kathy Acker coming out, uh, so that's done. Um, but that might be the end of this period where I did book every other year. I did enough books for one career. Like, frankly, like, what do people want me to want more? <laughs> Read the ones I already wrote. <laughs> right. Well, I actually have two questions about the ones you've already written. So one thing when you just brought up, um, you know, using your emotional damage to write, um, how do you see Reverse Cowgirl as um, either an instance of that or something different as in, like, an affirm, you know, some kind of affirmative experience? <laughs> Yeah, speaking of emotional damage, I wrote this book called Reverse Cowgirl. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's sort of in the autofiction, auto theory space, much maligned these days. I find so interesting people are so hostile to this. Uh, and it was, uh, um, I, I was on leave in 2018. I got so much writing done. Uh, but I knew I was going to start hormones and I wanted to use my pre-transition brain, pre-hormonal transition brain, uh, for one last time. And I thought, oh, well, I want to document exactly what I knew and understood more about gender euphoria than dysphoria. Um, cause I think there's, there's an, at least one other path. Um, it's important that not all trans people experience dysphoria, right? Um, it's important also to understand it and write about it. Cause we don't even have a good literature about dysphoria yet. Um, but I want to talk about gender euphoria with the, you know, what were the moments when I actually felt I can in inhabit my own body. Uh, and it was like, pardon my English, but it was basically when somebody fucked me, <laughs> it was like, oh, that's it. Like that's it. And it's not going to work for everybody. It's not universalizable. Um, but there is a way I could build a, a sort of conceptual armature out of, oh, this way gender dysphoria is like a clue that maybe the rest of your life could be structured around that experience, which not every waking moment is going to have that intensity, obviously. Um, but there's, there's a, you know, like a, a path to finding that um, and a path out of uh, thinking that the solution in my case had to be, am I straight or am I gay? And I think a lot of trans people go through that uh, of like, oh, maybe I'm gay, uh, but I'm not that attracted to the other sex. I want to be them. <laughs> I'm confusing desire to be with desire for. Uh, so, so it's a book that works through some of that stuff and, and talks about Australia, you know, I, I emigrated 20 years ago now, so it's, it's sort of a little bit about that space. There's 
um, portrait of um, the late Glenn Hennessy, this gay Aboriginal man that I knew, um, and I felt like I wanted to honour uh, his memory in a slightly complicated interaction. So yeah, I did a few other things along the way with that one. Stuff about fashion and media and how you find gender through those expressions, you know, a bit of that's in there too. And it sort of, it sort of, uh, it ends with the beginning of transition. So the, the it, it lacks a sort of narrative arc that ends neatly um, because the, the me character is sort of taking off in this very unguided, giddy adventure into transness. So it's not a conclusion. The beginning is at the end, in a sense, of the book. I have a, like a, a, a follow-up book to that, but I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> That was cool. Austin, Love- you looked like you wanted to say something. Yeah. I, I was just going to throw in with the um, with the stories, the character of this bus driver who's reading Phenomenology of Spirit aloud is just like, I, I can't believe that's real. <laughs> that's a true story. Yeah. It's like Australian, you know, like radical Bohemia was a super interesting place. And like, you know, it's a hobby, obviously a class stratified society, but class works very differently in relation to uh, intellectual life and cultural life. Yeah, that was so, so true. I went to see Glenn and there he's with a hat on in bed with two women. <laughs> and I was sort of asked to join them and I was like, <laughs> I, can't, I can't deal. You know, like it'd be a funnier story if I did, but I wanted to be true to that encounter. And I, I don't know where that person is now, so I left the name out. Mattress was on the floor even. You know. I have another question. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask about Capital is Dead. And I wanted to ask if you feel as though if you wrote it now, it would be different after coronavirus or, you know, what do you see as, you know, basically is Capital more dead? What, you know, would you write this book completely differently now? Um, Or, yeah, basically, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I got asked to write things when COVID started. Everybody was like, let's get intellectuals to talk about it as if we knew something about it. Uh, and you had Agamben and everybody writing these pieces where it proves my thesis correct. And I just did not want to write that piece. You know, like it, it didn't go down well. Everybody's like, I was right, is, is the answer to Like it's a pandemic, hun. People are dying. You know, you're being theoretically confirmed by death is really not a good look, you know. So I didn't write that. I wrote about uncertainty and, and other things. Um, that said, you know, like massive transfer of wealth into, you know, that part of the corporate world, uh, that owns logistics and information systems. Uh, yeah, like the kind of massive transfer of wealth to what I call vectorless class. Uh, well, that certainly happened. Uh, and that we're going to make the pandemic worse because protecting the intellectual property of pharmaceutical companies that don't even make the vaccine that's all outsourced to, you know, competing capitalists. They don't even make it. They just control, you know, develop it and and uh, control the IP and the brand and all that stuff, right? Uh, so, yeah, we're going to let the pandemic get worse rather than admit that intellectual property is maybe a arguable concept and at least in, in these sorts of cases directly harmful. So, yeah, the, the, the sort of entire value chain is now controllable. Um, through command of information. I gotta admit, <laughs> the pandemic, I think it supports my thesis. Um, but it's not a thing I'm even still yet comfortable in saying because, oh my God, look at the, the price of it. You know? Yeah, I think Austin has pretty strong views about um, intellectual property as well. I don't know if you've heard Austin's uh, 
proposal of let's all just um, live stream going to the bathroom and um, <laughs> everything should be live streamed. Deprivatizing information and data. Everyone fixates on the bathroom and they're like, everyone's going to see me like shit and piss. And it's, you know, there's more to life. It's just a thing that people do. Have you seen that I don't movie? know why that's the trauma. Have you seen that movie, We Live in Public? There's a movie called We Live in Public. Mm-hmm. That guy who started, um, uh, I forget his name, tried to start an uh, online TV station like 10 years too early. Uh, and it was called pseudo.com. Uh, my, my partner did acting in one of the shows and like we couldn't even watch it in New York. Like there wasn't a bandwidth. It was, it was way too early. Apparently there's some IP that came out of designing online television from that company that actually still has some value. Uh, but uh, they, they did that. Like he bought like a warehouse, outfitted it with bunks and, and you'd be housed and fed for free if you would uh, allow pseudo to film everything. And they did. I went to I went to parties there. It was hilarious, you know. There's like little cameras aimed at the beds, so that even at the party you could like have sex there, and it would go live on on television, you know. Uh, so yeah, if you're interested in in that sort of pushing the bounds of that, uh, it's it's like something out of Zamiatin's novel We, you know. Uh, um, Pseudo actually did it. It was kind of hilarious. And there's ways in which the boundaries between publicness and privateness have really changed a lot, um, and I'm just super consciously aware of that. Uh, as as someone who is uh, way too online uh, and always at that boundary of yeah, what parts of my life should really be private? Yeah. Uh, there's some things I really know about that, like you know, my kids never appear, uh, for example. Um, but I'm like, am I oversharing with this? Probably going to do it anyway. Um, and I, I think yeah, what what aspects of uh, professionalism and uh, uh, desire to be uh, intimate with strangers in public. How those? What's the friction between those things? Is really interesting to me. I can probably now never get hired anywhere else. People just look at my Twitter and be like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> my Instagram's all selfies. <laughs> yeah, like like some ridiculous. That's where it seems like. Sorry. It seems like it would be easier uh, just to then have that universal deprivatization. Everyone sees that so many other people are like this. It stops being forced to be privatized. And, you know, then you don't even have to debate what you share. You just, everyone knows all of everyone else's nastiness. And it stops being nasty, maybe. But that's utopian. I hang out on social media with trans, trans women, which means I hang out with sex workers because so many girls work, which means that we talk about it. And I'm like... I don't know if academia is kind of quite ready for that at the level of, you know, institutional proprietary, but obviously so many students now also do sex work because how else do you afford it? Uh, and there's never any public acknowledgement that that's just a reality. Kind of always was like, I, I you know, knew people who did sex work in the eighties. Uh, you know, uh, it's not new, like it's not like this got invented, but like there's definitely a way it's much more part of the culture now. Um, but yeah, we're really not quite ready for, yeah, I don't know. So may, maybe a much more, more, uh, reshuffling the boundaries of public and private even more, uh, would be kind of interesting. Like writers with only fans, how long has that been a thing? You know? <laughs> 
So is there anything you feel like we should all be reading right now? I know that's like, you don't want to give us a command, but maybe, you know, something you feel like we'd all benefit from. Oh, well, I, I'm reading a lot of um, uh, trans and adjacent uh, fiction, Matilda Bernstein Sycamores, The Freezer Door, um, not really a trans book, but in sort of inflected by reading uh, trans writing uh, about public intimacy, uh, cruising, uh, gentrification. That's a great book. I, I really love Daryl by uh, Jackie S. Uh, as a trans woman of color, but chose to write write about like a white cis guy uh, who's in the cuckold lifestyle and what likes to watch other men fuck his wife. Uh, I'm like, thank you. It is like, I'm just so great to have a book by a trans author where the trans character in it is marginal, is a, is a secondary character. And it's about exploring these other spaces of gender altogether. Yeah. Uh, I'm just looking at the books that are around me that I'm, I'm kind of, oh, and you know, like Tori Peters blew up with Detransition Baby. Like we're going to have conversations about trans culture. Everybody has to read that book. Um, I loved uh, Shola von Reinhold's book, Lot, L-O-T-E. Uh, on uh, a black queer trans femininity, but it just so finds a different language for that. I'm just sort of escape these sort of identity markers that get slapped on things. Lot's not published in the States, but it really, really should be. Um, it's kind of marvellous. Um, yeah, there's the We Want It All uh, anthology of um, trans, radical trans poetics. Um, and, and there's stuff that I really love, and there are, there are friends who are in it. Uh, I... I don't quite see poetry the same way as its editors, but but I kind of love the project that they have there. Uh, yes, transgender Marxism is coming out soon. Um, I I haven't read it yet. Uh, I know some of the authors that will be in that one. That's kind of super interesting um, project project to me. Yeah, there's there's yeah there's there's just so much coming out going on. Um, both trans theory and literature kind of exploded and, and one can, I can't keep up with it all anymore. Uh, I'm sorry I don't read trans men anymore, uh, but I can't, like, I, I'll read some. I, I really will. I'll try. And I don't read that much by non-binary writers anymore either because, um, like, just reading stuff by foreign about trans women is more than I can keep up with. So it's not a judgment to get those things. They're very important. Um, and but I, when I did the efflux, it's it's just trans femme stuff, um, but also because it's specific and it's sort of interesting to get to that. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, like we had to have anthologies and conferences about transness in general, um, but I think we're at that point we can be a little more specific, but not let's never be exclusive about that. Um, so that's the richness and that's the danger. I think where we're at now. So is there any question right now that um, is, you know, haunting you or continually occurring to you? I know you had mentioned uh, like the cis gaze and wanting to do some work on the cis gaze. I saw you, you did publish an article on that, right? Yeah. And, and I sort of started that, you know, Laura Mulvey set off this whole discourse around the male gaze and I wanted to do a sort of critical reading inside that. And then I had to look at the literature on the masquerade uh, then I read Charlotte van Reinhold's book and I thought, oh, wait a minute, the centering of the gaze is already white and colonial and masculine, so why an aesthetics of the gaze? Like, how do you get out of it? So I was really interested in the pieces I gathered for Eflux by uh, Maxie Wallenhorst and uh, Eva Hayward that sort of descended that, like Maxie's sort of writing about dysphoria 
uh, and its connection to dissociation, but putting some critical pressure on on that. Uh, and I love Eva Hayward's writing. It's like to me, it's a branch of trans theory I want to follow a bit more, even if it's not the dominant one, because it's not about identity at all. Uh, it's about embodied states, uh, a phenomenology of perception. Um, there's wildly specific stuff about the generation of trans women who are on Premarin might have experienced really quite weird and different sensory effects than those of us who are on the bioidentical stuff that came later. Uh, and she touches on that, has touched on that in this piece and elsewhere. There's this like really great reading on why um, visual art that's not photography might be an interesting way to think about um, trans becoming. Uh, rather than Jay Pross's centering of photography as if the the photograph was, you know, analogous to the real. Um, like that to me does some really amazing forward-looking work. So yeah, I'm sort of interested in, in picking up some of those strands a little bit. Um, the, the little project I'm nesting is a little different to that. Um, but the key to that might be that femme is in the middle of trans femme aesthetics. I'm like, what exactly is that? Uh, I'm super interested in the way that uh, uh, trans women pick up femme often without realizing its roots in black queer culture. Uh, and um, there's a piece in Eflux that picks up that strand, that there's a black and working class version of femme. There's nothing to do with looking feminine. Um, it's to do with um, being readable to others whose gendered embodiment is the same as a matter of communal self-defense would be a way of, of putting that. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just picking up femme as a thing that feminism disavows uh, and then gets mad when trans women want it. So it's like, hun, which is it? <laughs> do you want to claim femininity? In which case, yeah, we have to talk to you about it. Or do you want to disavow it? In which case, it's out. <laughs> so like they're sort of passing out that contradiction a little bit. I think we had a great conversation. Um, I do. Hopefully, as well. yeah. Hopefully, Mackenzie, you enjoyed yourself. Thank, thank you. And you know, I was, I was in a sort of obstreperous mood in some of this. You know, so like, like, like please forgive me, but like, <laughs> life on Zoom has has brought me to that. You know, where I'm, I'm becoming impatient and. Uh, um, but it has been a, a pleasure and, and thank you for all your questions and attention to the work. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us. And um, I just wanted to mention that uh, Mackenzie will be our new co-director of the Gender and Sexuality Studies Institute. Does that begin in June or what, when yeah, are you starting? I haven't signed the agreement yet. I think it's on all fours to, to happen. I think it's worth saying about that is is like like, that was on, on our agenda. We didn't get around to it. But um, gender studies has been a thing at the new school for quite a while, and I want to honour the memory of Anne Snittow around that, who was one of the people who, like, really, at a time when the university wasn't paying attention to it, kind of kept it going. And I think we still need the university to pay attention to why gender and sexuality studies is a thing the new school should really invest in and make visible um, uh, and, and draw together from the, the various parts of the university. And the one thing I'd really love to do at this stage of consolidating it is build in things like um, transgender studies, paying attention to sex work and pornography and things like that uh, as things that are no longer open to debate. Uh, they're, they're real things in the world and the people who are connected to those things are the voices we should listen to. And if you look at the public programming, 
the General Sexuality Studies Institute has been doing. I think it honors that. Yeah, uh, we uh, we did a panel on sex work that was that centered sex workers. It's not questioning their validity. Uh, we did one. I did one on trans aesthetics. That's all trans people. Uh, so I, I think to build those things into the next stage of it. Uh, has to be said, gender and sexuality studies has not been a hospitable place, particularly for trans women. Uh, and so to be able to do something that doesn't make that mistake from the start, I think it'd be a really wonderful thing to get off the ground. And of course, we have our own uh, history with race being a difficulty with our gender studies program at the new school as well. Um, so I'm hoping that we can, can try to diversify the GSSI more. Um, I know that's like we have to grow our program, we have to get more funding, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I wonder if you, you have thoughts on that too. Yeah, and the um, New School's really embarked on thinking through questions of race more seriously. Uh, that's one thing where I, I think the new president has, has really clearly marked that we need to pay attention to that uh, in ways that we haven't before. Uh, so yeah, I think that's central to thinking through what the hell uh, GSSI has to be in future. It doesn't help that it's it's only ever had white directors, yeah? Uh, but, yeah, I think that's a thing to attend to. I personally can't be that person, but to facilitate that uh, is kind of important. And in talking about the uh, things that matter in trans studies, I think race is central to those very issues that I raised and then to bring those into gender sexuality studies. Yeah, that's that's the work. All right. Well, we're really excited to have you. And um, yeah, we basically can't wait. We've been um, talking about it all year, actually. Austin and I. And Austin was like, wait, are you sure it's confirmed? Because I'm not sure. Um, but it is. You're confirming. We're going to have you. I haven't signed it yet. But yeah, I hope it's happening. I hope I don't disappoint. You know, it's, it's like, like I'm not as big a writer, I'm a writer, you know, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you. Um, and we will look forward to your upcoming projects and events that you're planning and just everything from you. Oh, likewise, yes. <laughs> so like, yeah, you don't know where to find me. Be in touch. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, thank you. All right. Bye. Bye.